First Peter chapter 3. After you turn there, I want to give you a quick quiz on what we have covered up to this point. We started on Friday night regarding symptoms and solutions of depression. We discovered as you look through that, Asaph, for the first five verses, 18 times I, me, my, six rhetorical questions. Is God no longer hearing? Is God no longer answering prayer? Is, does God no longer care? Is God's mercy clean gone? And then he switches, and that pivot point, he switches up. And all the depression wanes away when he considers the works of God and the wonders of God and the worship of God and the shepherding of God. As you come to the end of Psalm 77, and the rejoicing is back. And as you look at your life and the circumstances that you face in life, there is a very healthy practice for you to just go back and review the wonderful works of God and the wonders of God in your life and how your worship of God has grown through every tough situation. And then the tender shepherding of God when you think of the triad of Psalms of Psalm 22 and 23 and 24, the good shepherd, the chief shepherd and the great shepherd, all referring to the work of Jesus Christ for us as our shepherd who laid down his life for us. What a way to end a chapter on depression. And then we talked about the theology of the family. And God... Do you remember the job description God gave every one of us? That we might be reflectors of the communicable attributes of God. What a job description to every husband, every wife, every father, every son. And then we talked about responsibility that God gave. And then the restrictions that God gave. And then the relationship that God was preparing him for. And because God had to put these things in place, learn how to be a reflector of me, learn how to be responsible, learn how to accept my restrictions, so that when I bring the relationship into your life, you are going to be capable of being the leader I intend you to be. And then he talks about God bringing Eve into the life of Adam. And you remember the Hebrew word when Adam woke up? You remember what that Hebrew word was? Whoopee! We can, we can say whoopee! That'll wake us up tonight, won't it? Therefore shall a man leave severance, permanence, unity, intimacy. Then came chapter three. What three things were turned aside in the garden? Somewhere between the end of chapter two of Genesis and the, and the beginning of chapter three, Satan was cast out of heaven. Now the serpent was more subtle. And what was the first thing he went after? Authority. Exactly. And what happened when authority was gone? What changed? Attitudes. And when attitudes change, atmosphere change. You can only picture the difference in atmosphere in the garden after the fall compared to before the fall. 
They were cast out of the garden. And we said, thank the Lord for chapter 3 and verse 15. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, thou shalt bruise its heel. The first mention of the cross is called a protevangelium, Genesis 3.15. First mention of the crushing of the serpent's head and the exaltation of the seed of the woman, i.e. Jesus Christ. And I told Charlene a few years back, I said, everything we're seeing going on in the world right now is Genesis 3.15 in high gear. Because Satan knows he has but a short time. Now the last question I gave you. Can we have the kind of a relationship that God wants for man and woman? Can we have the relationship Adam and Eve had before the fall? Can we have that same kind of a relationship? And the general answer was yes. By what means? By regeneration. Being indwelt by the Holy Spirit and according to Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 18, be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Instantly rejoicing comes and then wives submit, husbands love, children obey. The direct context of the filling of the Spirit is instantly applicable in the home. Now, when we look at Ephesians chapter 5, we find that God gives the command to be filled. That's, that's not just a general request. It is a, a, an imperative command. Be, 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 in, being, continually be being filled with the Holy Spirit. And so then the wives will learn to submit. Uh, the husbands will learn to love. And the children then will come into obedience. But Satan goes after that plan to destroy what God originally intended and puts a question mark where God put a period. The wife is to be submissive. And we said that she was born, formed following man, from man, for man. All New Testament references. Now the question is, I'm not going to go to the responsibility of the woman that's given in First Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. I'm going to focus on verse 7 only, which is the responsibility of the man in building that relationship. I'm going to call it tools that God uses to build relationships. God prepared Adam with all of the instruction, with all of the warning, with all of the love, with all of the preparation, with all of the protections in place, and all of the provisions and power to be what God intended him to be. And when sin came in, they raised Cain. And when we see those consequences of sin that come in, we know that the devil is on the rampage against every absolute that God has. When you look at our society today, what is a Bible absolute here is under attack. Male and female created he them. Husband, wife is God's plan. And so now let's look in First Peter 3, 7. What particularly, before we close tonight, is the responsibility of the man? What tools... 
build relationships. Number one, we see likewise ye husbands. When you see likewise, uh, it refers back to uh, chapter 2. When you see the likewise in verse 1, it is likewise ye wives. I'm not going to focus on that. And the and there's a long instruction for women here because you have to remember the culture of that time was necessary for much detailed instruction to be given for how a woman is to function now as a believer because the culture was so different how women were treated at that time. But then verse 7, it's one verse for the men. Likewise, ye husbands dwell with them. First tool is the tool of time. Isn't that a strange command? You married her, now live with her. That seems strange, doesn't it? Dwell with her. Do you realize that time is a tool that stabilizes the emotion of the woman? When man married, remember in the Old Testament, and you see the reference, Deuteronomy 24.5, you remember what God under Mosaic law instructed when a man has taken a new wife? What is it? He shall not. Go to war, which has a good double application. And he shall be free at home. How long? One year. To do what? Cheer up the wife which he hath taken. That was under Mosaic law. When you got married, you don't go to war. Because you cannot get a man newly married on the battlefield because his mind would be so divided that you couldn't trust him to make right judgments on the battlefield. You stay home for a year. And by the way, don't go to work for a year. Wouldn't that be nice? But you know what it is? Stabilizing the emotion of the wife. Should be free at home one year. Can you imagine? And remember, the way they brought marriages together then, it's not like going to Faith Baptist and you see somebody you're really interested in in the dining hall and maybe one of the classes and you start eyeballing each other and then you you say, hey, uh, I'm going to get permission from my parents to see if I can start a relationship. And one Christmas break, you go to your parents and then one Christmas you go to her parents and then pretty soon there is a discussion. Well, back then parents would think time for the boy to get married. Take the camel and go to the mall and the boy's at home praying and fasting. What's coming home on that camel? So it wasn't the way they bring things together now. And you know what they did? Now you start learning. Time it takes time to build relationships. How crucial is that? Very crucial. I remember I was with my son Stephen. It's that way with parents and child too. I was driving with my son Stephen. I think he was about 14. and We were going somewhere and I said, Stephen, I'm going to ask you a question and please be honest. What don't you like about me? And I said, you will not hurt my feelings. He said, there's nothing I don't like about you. I said, Stephen, you're not going to hurt me. I want to know. He said, Dad, there's nothing I don't like about you. Then he said, well, you're gone a lot. I said, Stephen, I'll change that. 
and I changed what I could change and did it. But you know what? I couldn't drop uh, and keep the job I had. I could not drop some of the obligations and keep maintain the responsibilities that I had. So I took him out of school. And he traveled with me for a year. We were in Israel. Their wailing wall, he liked that one way better than the one that was in his bedroom when I made him bend over the bed when I was counseling him. <laughs> he liked that wailing wall way better. We were in all the different parts of the country and all the different parts of uh, several different parts of the world. Because you know what I began to realize? I, I failed in that relationship, the busyness, what, what Dr. Jim was talking about. The priorities, the things that have to be taken care of. And, and you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. But time's so necessary. Live with her. You realize when you go to bed at night, don't be... Don't be assuming the person you went to bed with that night will be there in the morning, alive. Too much to assume. Remember, I was coming back from doing a conference out in... in uh, we flew into Los Angeles. So I was doing a conference out in the desert. Actually, it was for, for the... Uh, West Coast Baptist Bible College. Met with their staff for their week of staff training. I was coming back. Our, our kids called said, Dad, we have Mom at the hospital. And I I said, uh, what's the problem? They said, we're not sure she has, has a pain. And she had never been sick, so I wasn't thinking. I thought, well, maybe a Penix or maybe gallbladder. I don't know. But we pulled over in Los Angeles, off the freeway there and prayed. And I was not praying seriously, uh, thinking that this is a, this is going to be an emergency because I thought it would be a minor thing. And I said, but if anything changes, call, uh, let Northwest Airline know so they can alert me in Minneapolis. So we landed in Minneapolis, and I was on that flight. I wasn't really uh, that concerned and uh, got to Minneapolis, and I stepped into the room off the plane, and my name was Paige to pick up a white courtesy phone. My heart just sank. I thought, this is not going to be good news. The message that came, one of our staff picked the phone, and one of the message, they came and said, uh, my wife's heart exploded. Well, that isn't what happened, but what happened is her descending aorta dissected between her heart. It dissected all the way down to the groin. I didn't know this was all going on. While we were in the air, our daughter Lisa knew the people at the hospital there were, were Charlene. They said, well, Lisa, we're going to observe your mom overnight. Lisa said, you're not observing anything. You're going to find out what's wrong with my mom. They They got so mad at her, they ordered... A, uh, a scan. And then after the scan, they saw they didn't want to look directly at Lisa and, and, uh, then they told her, Lisa, your mom is not going to live. I'm in the air. 
not knowing any of this is going on. We want to give you and your the siblings a chance to say goodbye. We're going to try to get her to Green Bay. They had a helicopter coming in, 70 mile an hour wind. They had to land the chopper. It couldn't get to the hospital. They were getting ready to load her in the ambulance. And uh, it's a 100 mile plus trip from Iron Mountain. And uh, so they alerted Charlene, said, and Charlene was at this point in a lot of pain and and uh, they were putting her on a gurney over towards the ambulance and our daughter Tammy was standing by the ambulance door and they were sliding her into the ambulance and and uh, they told Charlene, we want to give you a chance to say goodbye to your children. We're going to do everything we can, but realistically, we don't think you're going to make it. We want to give you a chance. What would you say in five minutes? Five minutes from normalcy to gone. What would you say in five minutes to your children? If you were a child, what would you say to your mother or your dad who is being loaded in and told, say goodbye? I don't think you would get on your mom about making you make your bed. I think you would pour every ounce of love that you could muster and let her know how much she is loved. Then they told Charlene, and Charlene told Tammy, please tell Dad, I'm sorry this is happening now. Tell him, please tell him I'm okay. I'll be okay. I just hate that it's happening when school is beginning. This was three weeks before 9-11. 20 years ago now. And so she told Tammy, tell Dad, I, I, it's okay. And uh, told Tammy where our $28 was hidden. <laughs> Don't know, about $26 now, I think. Slide in, door closed. My son Stephen followed the ambulance up to 115 miles an hour. We looked at the bill, 57 minutes from Iron Mountain, Michigan to Green Bay, over 100 miles. And uh, I'm in the air. I land in Minneapolis. I'm standing there believing the time that I had with Charlene was gone. Sam Horn was sitting across the aisle from me and I stared out that plane. I did not want the plane to land in Green Bay. I wanted to stay flying. Because I knew back then you could meet the plane before 9-11. You could meet the, the passengers at the gate. I didn't want to get off the plane. I did not want someone to come and tell me Charlene was with, with the Lord. Because you know what? All of a sudden time was... Gone. Gone. You know, you assume a lot of things. Tim and Barb Corey met our flight and said, Charlene is still alive. She had been in surgery for about eight hours. And I'm not going to go into the story of how that miracle happened. 
And uh, the PA, we got to the hospital and the PA kept coming out about every half hour, said, Charlene is still alive, she's still alive. Then the surgeon came out about midnight, I think, and he said, I need to meet the family in the conference room. So we all met in the conference room and the surgeon said, all I can tell you is Charlene is alive. Uh, We have no idea how much brain damage there is from the hours of blood loss. We have no idea how long the paralysis, she was paralyzed on her left side. We have no idea how long that is. But all I can say is she is alive. That's all I needed to hear. You know what? Because even if it was that much more time, it's precious. They said when the green light comes on, you can go into critical care while well, it was all night and then in the morning the green light came on and I went into the went in to critical care. I didn't recognize Charlene. She was so swollen, the pipes and all the things that were hooked up to her and I said, is that my that's that's your wife? I said, Boy. I actually had to do a double take. And she was in kind of half awake and half not awake, but she was conscious I was standing there. And she started moving her hand like this with everything connected to it. And I told the nurse, I I think she wants to write something. So they held a yellow pad up and put a pen in her fingers. And she wrote aneurysm clearly and accurately. I said, she's smarter in a coma than I am in good health. I said, I said, I couldn't write, I couldn't spell it. And if I spelled it, you wouldn't be able to read it. A bit of hieroglyphics. And there's nothing wrong with her brain. Well, she's paralyzed on the left side. She had no voice. August, September, October, November, December. And I think it was January. I think Charlene said, did I squeak? And there was like a little squeak. I said, I, I heard something. And the surgeon said, you know, we rushed to get in there. We had to, we took a saw and we cut her whole side open, got in there to see what was going on. And I might have severed a nerve going to her vocal cord. We'll deal with that later. We were, our goal was to keep her alive. Well, after those months, she started squeaking and then started talking little by little. And her voice came back an octave lower. She's that beautiful, uh, alto voice. Now it's daddy saying bass. And, uh, <laughs> but I'm going to tell you what, I have not taken one second of time for granted. And it was a long recovery. Long recovery. But there's a miracle sitting back there. We're no longer as young as we used to be. But you know what? We love being together. I love being with her. You know why? Because all of a sudden, time became a very precious commodity to me. Dwell with her. I wonder, do we get a little bit too careless? It doesn't mean that we need to quit our jobs and, and, and bug our wives because she'd say, please, find a job, get out of the kitchen. I don't mean to that. But you know what? We we come to a point 
And she hates me talking about this, but I believe it's a very valuable thing to share. Live with her. According to knowledge, learn about her. The second tool in building a strong relationship is learning about her. And I do believe that God will give us the knowledge and give us the wisdom that we need to have to do what needs to be done. And we will learn what our wives' desires, what our wives' giftings are. And when you look at the the idea of learning, God will give the wisdom that we need for that role that we have. Do you know your wife? You say, unless, are you saying we need to understand women? No, 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 I'm not, I'm not saying that. We need to know them. I'm understanding. There are a lot of things we don't understand. We used to work on, when I was at Calvary, I was in charge of our bus ministry, and my brother Earl and I did most of the mechanic work on, on our buses, and we had, I think, six or seven buses when, uh, we, uh, when we had our, our fleet, and, when things were wrong, we'd be under them, and I'd come in, be greased up, and and I'd go in the bathroom, and and I holler. I said, "Honey, this soap isn't lathering up at all." She said, "You're not supposed to use that. It was soap balls, blue soap balls, on the back of the commode." I said, "If you're not, why are they in the bathroom if you're not supposed to use them?" A lady explained to me. On another occasion. You know what the blue soap balls were for? Wait till you hear this. I still accept it by faith. You women. And if you believe that. Bless your heart. And if that makes you feel so much better in your home. You know what I was told? You know what the blue soap balls did? One lady said the blue soap balls. Pulled the blue out of the wallpaper. Really? I went in there and listened. Come on, Blue, you can do it. <laughs> I had no idea in the most quiet room in the whole house that this soap was struggling. I said, okay, I take that by faith. I mean, then somebody said the rug does the same kind of thing. Come on, Blue. I mean, do, are we supposed to understand that? No, but we're to love them. <laughs> Learn. We were doing a conference down there in Dollywood, a couple's conference, and if, remember, honey, that couple went shopping and they came back with a bag and they said, we got you some, some, uh, soap. And why, well, I forget what they call it, but it was something along the line of helping to pull blue. Or red, whatever it pulls out of things. Well, according to knowledge, giving honor, love her, tool of love. Consider her precious. Consider her precious. I appreciate what Dr. Tillerson talks about being romantic. I was... During a men's conference, I said, men, on the way home, uh, your love, I said, stop, maybe get a dozen of roses or, or get uh, chocolates or at least write a nice note to let your wife know that you love her. 
And uh, one guy spoke up and he said, she'll think I got the idea from here. I said, why do you think she paid to send you to this conference? She's expecting you to come home different. Love her. Agape love. So the tool of time, the tool of thinking, and the tool of tenderness. As we look at the tools that build those relationships. And then giving honor to her is unto the weaker vessel. So lead her. The tool of a testimony. What testimony do you have when you go to a gas station, when you go to somewhere and you give a gospel tract? Or you give a witness? Or your children and your mates see you with the word early in the morning as you're on your way to work. What kind of leadership are you showing spiritually? What are you doing to show that the word of God is alive in your life and you have the tool of a right testimony as they follow? You say, well, preachers, that's basically what they do. No, it's not preachers. It's all of us as believers, as men, need to be a testimony to our family in our hunger for the word, our hunger for the lost souls, and our hunger to do obedience. And I'm coming to a close. Charlene and I were doing a family camp at Northland, There were 90-some family units there, which meant like there were about 500 family campers all together with children. And uh, and a man came to me Tuesday morning, a man from South Carolina, and he said, Les, are you aware that there are at least five unsaved people in camp this week? And this was a businessman. He was not a preacher. He was not a missionary. He was a businessman. And he said, I think when you look at the, the, uh, aspect and what he had done that night, he had been there only Monday night and what he had done that night, he had met every family and generally asked, how did you get saved? And he said, there are at least five here who had no testimony of salvation. Just be aware of that when you're speaking. And I said, well, thanks for mentioning that. And as uh, I would speak, I would insert the gospel into the uh, messages as much as was fitting. And then I was going, going a message on Thursday night. Because he came and asked me, he said, have you met some of these? I said, yeah, I've, I've circulated and I've met some of these families. And and as I was uh, there, I, I was leaving the house and I told Charlene, I'm going to change my message. And I actually changed the message to what I'm preaching tonight, tools that build relationships. And I was going to focus on the tool of time. And I took my ruler. I had a the old carpenter ruler and I had it out to 36 inches. And I said, this is how much time we have been allotted. Three score and ten. I said, if each inch on this 36-inch ruler represented two inches, you would have uh, two years, you would have 72 years of life. And I said, that's the allotted time, three score and ten. And I said, when you were born, this is how much time you had. Then I clicked off. 
the first six inches I collected in and I said, no, childhood is gone. Now you are out of grade school. And then I clicked again. I said, now you're through high school and you are into early adulthood. Finish college if you're going to college or now you are in your, in your profession. So now you're 24 years old. And I clicked again. I said, now you're midlife. You're 36 years old. And I said, those years are gone. So I held up that last three segments. And I said, those years are gone. They're not coming back. In fact, I remember when uh, a man that we had seen come to the Lord, a huge logging operator, and he wanted me to come over and talk. He said, I, I have some, I have 12 millionaire friends. I'm going to bring them to my logging camp and a huge, huge, beautiful log cabin that he had on 17,000 acres, one of his pieces of property. He said, I'm going to have them come over. I want you to come and speak to us. He said, they're multi-millionaires, but they're afraid to die and will not admit it. They're too proud to admit it. I want you to tell us what's coming next. When he introduced me, he said, brought my buddy here. I want him to tell us what's coming next. And I took my ruler. I thought, okay, I'm going to click down. I got to 36. Then I clicked it to 48. And the lady sitting next to my wife said, stop. This is getting scary. I said, you better be scared. Some of you are off the end of the ruler already by the looks of it. (laughs) And... uh, and there and now I'm at 48. Then I click it. Now I'm at 60. And I said, no, that's what's left. I said, I was at preaching at a church. I got there early. Cemetery by the church. I pulled in and looked at tombstones. I said, there was a date, a dash, and a date. And I said, life is a dash between dates. Every single thing about your life was in that dash. A birth date, a date of death, a dash. And I said, what is in that dash is what you will carry into eternity, either lost or you will carry into eternity, given an accounting of your works as a believer. But that's your life. And I said, don't assume The person you woke up with this morning will be there when you go to bed tonight. So I preached that. And then next day they had a family basketball. They were going to invite all the families into the gym. And they were going to bring their kids and the wives and everybody. We're just going to have a a big basketball uh, thing going on. And, And Dennis Pegram, who was the guy who was directing all this, uh, got the families together and he said, we'll meet at the gym after lunch. And then he got this all going, got the families going. Charlene and I went to town with her brother, Gene, and uh, sister-in-law who came out for family camp that week. And we drove up in Iron Mountain. <clears throat> On our way back from Iron Mountain, I get a call from Tim Corey. And, and he said, uh, Les, uh, Dennis Pegram had a heart attack in the gym, 52 years old. Man who worked out regularly, ate very healthy, very good condition. 
he organized this basketball uh, thing and he was running down and he went up for a layup and his soul went straight to glory and he crumbled. And the policeman to whom he had given the gospel, it was a young couple, policemen from Illinois, had given them the gospel and they were brand new. They said, this doesn't make any sense. We, we came to be with our, I think it was sister-in-law who invited us. And he thought, how dumb. You pay to get preached to for a whole week. But Dennis witnessed to him. And when Dennis lay dead on the floor, this policeman told me, he said, I know he was dead. He must have died midair because he was dead when he landed. We had within probably less than a minute the nurses who were present there for all of the activities brought the pads, paddles, that, and uh, they said, no, he's gone. So we're driving back. And I see the ambulance, no lights, no siren, going north. And I, I said, you know what? Dennis is, Dennis is gone. We dropped her brother and sister-in-law. We drove up, back up to the hospital. And all the, they had nine children. Three of them worked the camp. One of them, Josh, was the head of our music for three summers. Josh Pegram, I think they were from Iowa, actually. And uh, Charlene and I got there, and there was there was a panic. We went from one child to the next to the, t- and they were crying and wailing. And here Dennis on a gurney, tennis shoes, gym shorts, full of life. Thirty minutes earlier, gone. We got to Ina, the wife, after hugging those kids and the children. Just a tremendous family. I got to Ina, and, and Ina, we just held each other. As Charlene was coming, hugging those the boys and and the girls, as they were in just in shock. And Ina said, "You know what? The last thing Dennis did when you finished preaching, being dismissed for lunch, I preached from eleven thirty to twelve twenty, and." And said, Dennis said, honey, come here. He slid next to me and I slid next to him. He said, honey, let's bow our heads right now and thank God for the time he's given us. They assume they'd still have another 30 years. But remembering the message from the night before. And she said, that's the last thing Dennis did with me with his arm around me, thanking God for the time that we've had. I'm not saying that's going to happen to you, but are we living in such a way that we realize that the Lord is in control of our time? And I think when Dennis Pregram's funeral was in South Carolina, talked to a guy who was at the funeral, he said, I got there at like 7 in the evening, and the line was so long, there were, I don't know how many, probably 3,000 plus people that were in line. He said, I got, it was late, late in the night by the time I got by the coffin. But you know what that man had? He had a passion for souls. He was a businessman. He had a passion for souls. 
One lady, I preached Friday night on death. I said, I'm not going to give an invitation. The lady came forward, got saved right at the altar. I said, Charlene and I are going to be circulating. You know, God knew he was taking Dennis Pegram home. And he also knew he was taking him home through Dunbar. And you sitting out there know exactly why God had Dennis Pegram in Dunbar. And I said, it's up to you to respond. 11 o'clock that night, this policeman and his wife, the young couple, grabbed me. I was getting ready to head home. Grabbed me, said, can we talk? We went in the back of the daily grind. I pounded. They were locking up. I went back. 11.30 at night, they opened their hearts to Christ. And they said, you know, we never had any idea what was coming. Nanook of the North got saved a year later. Great big guy with a bushy beard and You know what? Probably five from that week, from Dennis's personal witness as a businessman, was recorded in eternity. The tool of a testimony. And then laugh with her. Not only live, not only learn, not only love, not only lead, but learn how to laugh. One guy told me, and I'm done. One guy told me we were in California, and he said, boy, you tell a lot of jokes. I said, I do? I said, I've been here eight days. Tell me how many jokes I've told. Just see if you can remember one. And uh, he thought, I said, think real hard. Because I didn't tell any. He said, well, we were laughing. I said, I don't tell jokes. I describe life. There's nothing funnier going than real life. You know what we need to learn how to do sometimes? To just laugh. Laughter does good. Like a medicine. And boy, in our families, how valuable is it just because we get so burdened and we get so pressured that we need to learn how to just learn how to rejoice and then laugh in the Lord. What's that song we sang last night? Ha, 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 ha. Boy, that's, <laughs> I mean, go home and sing that one every night. Ha, 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 That was easier for me to memorize. <laughs> Way easier than the, than the original verse that we sang. But you know what's good to laugh? Hasn't it been good to laugh as a couple here? I know it's getting late. We're not going to be laughing if I keep going. (laughs) They're going to be choking me. Tools. Yes, we can have what God intended. But it takes the filling of the Spirit. You young people here have a tremendous responsibility to lift the hearts and arms of your parents. Not just mom and dad. You have a responsibility to be a blessing in that home and uh, see what God can do to use you to bless others. Father, thank you for the precious time that we've had together. God, give us hearts to love you.
Give us hearts to follow your commands clearly. And if there's anyone here who is without Christ, help them to realize the time is very short. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.